0: And that will bring everybody down so don't worry Ah uh, yes don't worry <laughs> be happy. Well, we'll see because investors are apparently pretty optimistic, but they are indeed worrying about economic and political matters. Let's get into this um, because there's the latest version of the Wells Fargo Gallup Investor Optimism Index Survey. That's a lot of words. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Eric Davidson is here. Chief Investment Officer at Wells Fargo Private Bank based in Chicago in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. I'm just having some fun with you. (laughs) Tell us about this survey, though. You guys have been doing this for a while, right? Yeah, the
1: survey goes back to 1996, so we got a lot of good data in there yeah
0: who are you talking to what kind of uh, questions are you asking
1: yeah so the survey goes back quite a while um, it- it's run by Gallup, and they do fantastic work. We're, we're talking to investors in the survey. So investors are defined as people over 18 that have more than $10,000 invested. So, um, This is retail, not institutional, or uh, a little bit well, above? A minimum of 10000 So it. In, investors, and it's, uh, they do a really good job of making sure that it uh, represents de- demographically uh, the country. So they really do a good job of getting a sense of where investor sentiment is. Yeah.
2: And how concerned are the investors right now?
1: And um, as the survey shows, optimism levels are, are actually fairly high. We're above 100. The scale goes from minus 400 to plus 400. And we're above uh, 100 where we've been now since November. Now, mm-hmm. investors are optimistic, but they're not exuberant. Uh, you have to go back to January of 2000, which was the high for the index in which we got. We were much, much higher. We were up around 152. So uh, investors. Does are, it ever
0: go to four hundred?
1: No, no. But those so, are sort of the, the extremes. If everybody was happy about everything, or because uh, we ask the same seven questions every quarter, people plus some other things as well. But if everybody was really, really happy about everything, it could conceivably get to four hundred. Yeah.
2: Well, we're Americans. You know, a seven is like an old ten. Yeah. Or something. yeah. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> Say, I'm interested that uh, the survey shows that most investors, while they're handling the volatility well, I'm really been focusing on the retire. Diaries, mm-hmm. Right. They have less time yeah. and they may be living longer mm-hmm. and their portfolios yeah. may uh, cause some angst. Sure. If you're over 65 or 70, yeah. 75. Yeah. And, you know, what recommendations do you have in these? Again, we don't want to say it's volatile right now, mm-hmm. but it's causing some anxiety. So sure. what should retirees be doing?
1: Well, the curious thing in the survey and that's actually played out uh every quarter is that believe it or not, you know, you think of older people and maybe, you know, I know as I get older I get a little bit more cr- curmudgeon-y and such, but uh maybe I even get a little more worrisome, but actually retiree optimism is actually higher uh than non- the non-retirees. Really? Why? Well, Maybe one thing is they're enjoying retired life. <laughs> but I think also while – Perspective. Yeah, perspective.
0: perspective. I think certainly I, – Well, I, they're finally getting something on some of their fixed income investments. Yeah, I, yeah, mean, yeah. I mean, for a long time, they've gotten nothing. That's true. Yeah,
1: kind of the financial repression idea. Yeah. But also I think uh, someone who's advanced in years, as much as I look at my own self, as I see everything that could go wrong, I also see that over time generally things – Seem to work out in life, and I think that's probably the perspective that retirees bring. But uh, so, what to answer your question, Charles? What should they be doing? You know, um, do they
2: rebalance their portfolio? Uh,
1: the, yes, they do. The real challenge is to get away from the mindset that retirement is uh, is the finish line, and you know, the idea that you might just go all to cash once you reach retirement. Because these days, with longevity, right. people once they hit retirement, they could be living. Decades longer, and so the idea that you still need to be taking substantive risk.
0: Eric, I think one thing that's interesting in these study uh, results, these survey results, is you say um, the investor said seven in ten are somewhat or very worried that trade relations with China, 71%, yeah. could impact the markets. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty high number.
1: Yes, it is. And, and these questions it, we change uh, every quarter, and we, we to did kind do, of
0: fit the situation. It kind of fits
1: the situation. Um, but we did this in early May, and that's when the you know the the saber rattling was started. Yeah. Uh, it's also interesting to see that the top worry of investors was uh, the political environment in Washington D.C. Forty-eight percent were very worried. Yeah,
0: what uh, does it dig a little bit deeper than that? Like, what are they worried about? Oh, uh, you know, it, it's
1: I sort of cringe when people say, you know, we've never. Things have never been worse. Things have never wow. been partisan. Go back to the
0: 60s. Well, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I was gonna say, I was yeah. gonna say, society.
1: Things yeah. have been much yeah. worse. But, but, well, go yeah. back
2: to the gas lines of the seventies. Yeah. yeah.
1: So yeah. I hesitate, to, but you know, I think if, if we're objective, probably things are worse uh, in the partisanship than they were f- mm-hmm. five or ten years ago. So I think that's that's right. And and you know, no matter where your politics land, I, I think you know, uh, even Donald Trump himself would say that he's an, an unconventional president. And oftentimes the markets look for conventional and stability so that, that's a little bit of a challenge for people
0: yeah were you surprised by the results just got about 20 seconds um was there anything or what changed from the, the previous quarter that really stood out
1: the quickly? wall of worry has gotten higher for people yeah. than, than as opposed to was people are happy for today but they're worried for tomorrow
0: yeah and that, and that could be significant especially if they hold back on spending and things like that yeah. that certainly starts to uh, impact the economic uh, environment Nice to have you back.
1: Yeah, great to be here. Thank you,
0: Eric Davidson, Chief Investment Officer at Wells Fargo Private Bank, based in Chicago, in our Bloomberg Eleven Three O studio on this Thursday.
2: Drug, the drug, look on me.
0: All right, this story is fascinating, uh, and it's among our most read in uh, on the Bloomberg Terminal in the past eight hours. Amazon.com making a big foray into healthcare with plans to buy online pharmacy. Pill pack. It's a move that sent shockwaves through the healthcare sector. You heard Doug and others talking about that. Let's get more on what Amazon is exactly up to. I think Robert Langrith, they are up to conquering the world. <laughs> Robert is our healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York City. Robert, um, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised. Amazon has talked about getting into healthcare.
3: Well, certainly, you know, there have been you know rumors and articles and speculation. And you know, uh, for like really, for months and months and months. So will Amazon get into the pharmacy business, the pharmacy supply chain uh, in some way? And it's been you know, it partly you know, people think it partly drove CVS's deal to buy. You know, at the insurer, Aetna, So, but Amazon hasn't done, you know, hasn't really done anything till now, and the kind of talk had died down. And now, all of a sudden, it's making its move. It's putting, clearly, putting its footprint into the uh, you know retail mail order pharmacy space with this deal to buy this innovative pharmacy startup PillPack, which focuses on packaging mail order drugs together uh, for people, you know, especially older people taking multiple drugs.
2: Well, Robert, uh, your article on the Bloomberg Terminal is just so thorough. I'm wondering if you can kind of put us in the seats of these two founders of PillPack. Uh, Were they seeking to be bought? Uh, Where did Amazon even find them?
3: Well, they you know they are one of the, you know, the handful of uh, venture backed startups in the pharmacy space. some of them are focused on delivery you know local delivery, fast delivery other of them is focused on like, having a nice website uh, to you know to shop for cheap drugs online, uh, find deals and this one was a little PillPack was a little unique and it stuck out because you know what it had was it was kind of an integrated full service mail or a pharmacy as licenses you need a license to ship drugs to different states it had licenses in all 50 states and so that made it a among the startups, really only the big, giant incumbents like CVS and like Express Scripts had, you know, giant mail or services. Very few other places, you know, had that that, that capability to have a basic infrastructure. So even though they're small in terms of, you know, just tens of thousands of customers, they had the basic infrastructure to ship drugs anywhere in the country. And very few, you know, other places, you know, had that set up. Already, so that was probably an appeal to Amazon, and then it has this, you know, innovative back-end software system that you know automates a lot of the rote you uh, wrote uh, stuff that pharmacists have to do in terms of verifying copays and insurance, uh, and and things like that, and you know helps the pharmacists, you know, just deal with they well, you know, the, the consumer, the patient struggling with their drugs. So it had some basic things and gives Amazon an immediate footprint into mail order pharmacy.
2: Well, and as more people take more pharmaceuticals, it gets – and as you get older and if you have um, some illness, there's a lot of pills that you need to take. You need to take two of these in the morning and four of these over the next course of the week. So correct me if I'm wrong, but PillPack's unique brand is that it comes already – Prepackaged in the day of the week that you need to take that pill.
3: Exactly. That has a system for doing that, for getting it right, for having these packages. So it's very user friendly for people taking multiple drugs. That's but, exactly but, the niche. It's already done in long term care facilities, nursing homes, a they created a system that allowed you to do this reliably and simply for the outpatient. Yeah. Mail order market. I've you,
0: seen it at work. It's pretty impressive you, at like assisted living um homes for for older individuals or or those who are are not well and it's fascinating how the pills come in. But Carol, do
2: you have any core fear that there's an error? You know, I don't know out a side not you know not that our pharmacists at CVS were watching them do it, but any core fear that when you do the drugs, the pharmaceuticals by mail that there's a higher Frequency of error?
0: I don't know. I don't know that I think about that. No, not yet. (laughs) Okay. But what I want to ask you, Robert, though, about your story is that you talk about um, PillPack already having relationships with Express Scripts and CVS, and that this could potentially give Amazon access to much of the prescription drug market in the United States, kind of overnight.
3: Yeah, so basically PillPack is, you know, is in the pharmacy networks for most of the major insurers and most of the major drug benefit managers. So, right. you know, you or I could likely, you know, call PillPack today and be able to use their service, and it would be a covered service. It wouldn't be, like, rejected by your insurance. They they are in network at most places right now. That's another, you know, unusual feature that they have. They are generally in network at most right. places. So does it, most it, patients would have access to it.
0: Does it mean – just got about 40 seconds here – does it mean CVS and um, – Express Scripts, they need to be concerned. I mean, they're they're working with PillPack, but what's the future for them? Just quickly. Well, absolutely.
3: This is a, a tremendous potential. Long-term, it's a tremendous threat to other players in, in the retail and mail-order drug market. So absolutely, if Amazon tries to aggressively uh, expand this service to more and more patients and go beyond the, the niche of people on many and multiple drugs to a broader market, absolutely, it's a threat. It would yeah. be very interesting to see if some of the big incumbents, like the ones you mentioned, try to retaliate.
0: Well, Amazon,
2: yeah. Does CBS think that the wolf is in the hen house?
0: I don't know. I don't know. But it's fascinating, these relationships. It's very... Like the tech community, right? There are companies that work together and they compete with one another. And mm-hmm. that's how it plays. Robert Langworth, thank you. healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York City. Oh, hmm. R.E.M.? Is that R.E.M.? Dave Wilson, is that R.E.M.? Oh, God, people, really? Oh, my God, Ted. We're going to get a, a talking down here. He's going back on tour
4: this year. I got tickets to see him in October. Who is
0: that? Phil Collins. Oh, that is Phil Collins. Yes, it is. Yeah, I didn't hear the uh, big drum-like... Oh, my God, I'm embarrassed (laughs) The percussion riff, right?
4: Well, there you go. I mean, in these days, he isn't even playing the drums because he physically can't, but he sits on stage and sings, and he's still got his voice. I think
0: Phil Collins, and I think of his daughter now, who's doing all this acting. Did you well, know about well, there that? you go. I right.
2: think of the 1980s.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> what do you think of when it comes to chart of the day, Dave Wilson? How about emerging
4: markets? Let's think oh, about. I that. love this topic. Yeah. You know, because yesterday, I mean, I actually put out a chart that somebody else did on my social media feeds, like Twitter, at the one Dave, uh, because <laughs> Morgan Stanley, you know, Mike, uh, not not Mike Wilson, uh, Jonathan Garner, who's their emerging market strategist. Yeah. You know, he talked about you know, on Bloomberg Television how he's anticipating a bear market for these stocks. And he cut his uh, 12-month projection for the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, the benchmark that a lot of investors use, by 14%. Well, that's one side of the story. Here's the other side. You know, you've got Credit Suisse's Andrew Garthwaite, another strategist, uh, reaffirming his call that, you know, you want to have a relatively heavy weight in these stocks if you're an investor. Uh, Research uh, affiliates, Rob Arnott's firm, which does, among other things, you know, the fundamental indexing based on earnings and whatnot. They're saying now's the time to buy, not to sell. And what I picked up on was a chart yesterday from Keith Lerner, who's a chief market strategist at SunTrust Private Wealth Management. What he did is he looked at relative performance uh, between the MSCI emerging markets and the S&P 500, and he saw an unusually wide gap. And he measured it based on three months. I kind of recreated that, 60 days worth of trading, pretty much the same time frame. All right, so wait. What's the payoff here? The payoff here is that the gap in terms of emerging markets lagging mm-hmm. is in line almost exactly matching the average for lows set between 2011 and 2016. And it was actually reached last week. So the payoff is, uh, you know, potential for a rebound here. If you want to know more, folks, send me an Great. email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it, and everything I do going forward. The email address is wilson at bloomberg.net. That's D Wilson at
0: bloomberg.net. Yeah, get to an oversold condition and some people will say it's time to buy. That's how it goes. <laughs> All right, Dave Wilson, our Bloomberg stocks editor. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Alibaba uh, pulling back in the United States. Here to tell us about it our own Selena Wang, global technology reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Selena, hello. What's going
5: on? Hey, so there's been a clear pullback in Alibaba's presence in Silicon Valley. Now, shortly after the IPO, the sentiment was that Alibaba was really taking over Silicon Valley, going on a shopping spree in the States, investing in well-known consumer tech companies like Fanatics, Lyft, Jet, and Snapchat. And if you look at the data more recently, the only investment they've made this year is a tiny deal and a tiny early-stage not well-known startup. My sources also told me that the top deal maker they had hired to lead the U.S. investment strategy left the company earlier this year, and they aren't replacing him. They're going to make an internal promotion. I think that's also indicative about how much they're prioritizing the United States outside of all of their other regions.
2: Is Alibaba independent from any pressure from the Chinese government? I mean, there are Chinese e-commerce, but would they take any marching orders from government officials the way that maybe Trump would put pressure on a U.S. company?
5: I mean, that's always the perception and the skepticism from U.S. lawmakers that these Chinese tech giants really have to be at the beck and call of the Chinese government. Now, obviously, like any country. There are ties between the Chinese government and these tech companies, but they would say that they operate very independently. Uh, Now, Alibaba has stayed mostly shielded from a lot of these trade war tensions since they don't have a huge export business into the United States as of now. But that being said, being in the midst of these rising, escalating uh, animosity between these two companies isn't great for doing business and investing and learning from companies in the United States.
2: And that is kind of what their um, strategic plan is, that they invest in American startups, and then those startups teach it about new technologies, new consumer trends, and things like that. Isn't that true?
5: Exactly. I mean, they're not looking to chase after United States consumers here. They know that they have deeply entrenched competition here from the likes of Amazon and eBay, but they do want to learn from the startups here and bring right. some interesting technologies to let it feed back into their core business. So that one startup they did invest in in the United States, right. I talked to the CEO of that company and they're doing a partnership with Alibaba to bring some of their data storage technology into China. Right. But all of this isn't going to stop Alibaba's innovation plans. They are investing $15 billion into okay. research and development in the coming years. are going to recruiting scientists in the U.S., China, Israel, Russia. Got it. To do developments in artificial intelligence, quantum computing, the list goes on.
0: Selena, we got to run. Good stuff, though. Selena Wang of Bloomberg News.
5: I'm
2: driving my car. I turn on the
5: radio. How about you let me drive?
2: Oh, no. No, no, no.
5: Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving.
2: Drive home.
1: Excuse
3: me, I want to drive. You just drive, baby. Drive it's the question that drives us.
4: This is The Drive to the Close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: It is time for The Drive to the Close. Jim Lowell back with us, Chief Investment Officer at Advisor Investments. They've got over $5 billion in assets under management. Jim uh, joining us uh, from where the company is based in Newton, Massachusetts. Um, Jim, good to have you back uh, and joining Ted and myself. So... It's only Thursday and it feels like it should be Thursday <laughs> of next week, kiddo. <laughs> yep. um, trade issues continuing to weigh on investors' minds. How do you read it?
6: Look, it's a very unnerving time to, to be an investor. I would say there's absolutely no reason not to feel overly emotional about pretty much anything taking place on the planet. But in terms of your portfolio, I would say that while there are a lot of people yelling fire in this political theater, as an investor, I would be, yes, mindful where the exits are, but for now, try and enjoy the investment show, which continues to benefit from our economy's slow growth, not no growth road. Granted, this was the week where that was harder to do so far. Basically, facts really haven't been able to speak louder than words, except for maybe today. But every fundamental fact that we see. So the things we know are earnings, economic data, still relatively low interest rates, creates an environment which ought to, over any meaningful investment timeline, reward investors rather than punish them.
2: Say, Jim, you've said that the trade war talk versus the trade war facts, and that probably keeps you optimistic. But I'm also wondering about something else about your personal history of being optimistic. I, I learned that you, you have a master's in theological studies from Harvard Divinity School.
0: So, does, I mean, ha- that's a perfect degree to have right now. Don't I'm you? just going to say that.
7: Uh, I mean,
2: in, in any way, do, do, does it play to, to a strength of yours uh, in, in your profession as an advisor?
6: So I was a philosophy major. Um, I do have a master's degree in theological studies from Harvard. I also have a master's degree in Anglo-Irish literature from Trinity over in in Ireland. Uh, All of that helps me think uh, outside of the box, uh, remain fairly calm and collected when others may be uh, moved by unreasonable uh, assumptions. Um, I would say, though, at my core, I was born a skeptic. So Our portfolios reflect a very healthy dose of not just challenging other people's assumptions, but also challenging our own assumptions. We have a great uh, investment research team, and we gather every Monday. And really the task is to make sure that that we are on target. And right now what we're seeing is a persistence of slow growth, not no growth, in our economy. Obviously very uneven uh, growth uh, factors at play, in particular trade war fears and realities in, in the established foreign And emerging market spaces. Uh, But we also invest in managers who are clearly among the best informed and best able to out analyze and out execute competitors in the marketplace. Um, And so when you add in uh, our layer of healthy skepticism, our good research bench, and the active managers that we invest in, we have a pretty good tripartite way to approach not just uh, difficult and, and emotionally challenging marketplaces, but but outright difficult marketplaces. We've been in business for 20 years, and in that time, uh, we've certainly seen uh, pretty much everything, sure. both positive and, and negative. Don't, don't mean
2: to interrupt. I, I, we get the sense you don't spend a lot of time forecasting the recession that people are kind of like laying <laughs> odds on. But I do get a sense that you, you have an opinion about the midterm elections and what impact that could have when we get there.
6: yeah so – you know, panic doesn't come from uh, knowledge; it comes from uh, basically from opinions that get whipped up into all kinds of fiery ire. And I would say that uh, this midterm election is likely to be one of the most contentious midterm elections uh, in my conscious lifetime. I might have to go back to the, the late '70s to find the kind of civil unrest that I think will be inflamed rather than uh, cautioned with reason. And what will that do to the
2: mar- what will that do to the markets, in your opinion?
6: Uh, It it will definitely add volatility to the markets, in our opinion, and it really could, uh, in fact, turn into the kind of panic-based momentum that would lead to uh, a significant pullback of 10 percent or more based on nothing other than fear of potential outcomes.
2: Well, you deal a lot with the perception. It seems like your background kind of can temper the perceptions from everybody just jumping off of a cliff. But at what time does Jim Lowell kind of get rattled? with what we may be seeing in the coming months?
6: All of our portfolios run with what we call shock absorbers. So Even our growth portfolios have a fairly healthy dose of, of bond and even cash positioning. And, and many of our managers can ratchet down their risk pretty quickly and, and raise their cash levels as well. So we have ways to tamp down yeah. uh, the kinds of things that could could hit this market hard. But going forward, right. I think uh, from an investment
0: perspective, we just need to be mindful. Well, mindful and say a prayer for us, Jim, okay? Jim Lowell, <laughs> Chief Investment Officer at Advisor Investments. Great to check in with him. Over $5 billion in assets under management on the phone from Newton, Massachusetts.
2: You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Let's talk a little bit about uh, the food business because it's certainly in focus this week, especially with Conagra picking up Pinnacle Foods uh, this week. Jeff uh, Harmoning, he is chief executive officer at General Mills based in Minneapolis. That's where the, home, uh, the company's headquarters uh, are. But he's at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Jeff, nice to have you here with uh, Ted and myself. Uh, tell me a little bit about um, what, what are some of the major trends that you're seeing right now in the food business because I do feel like there's some jockeying for position right now.
7: Well, you know, one of the we we continue to see the trend in food values, and consumers are looking for products with you know simple ingredients and and um, certainly things that have a high taste profile. I mean, one of the reasons why we grew our cereal businesses last year. But I think, you know, one of the big trends is how food is delivered. And I think over the next few years, we'll see a continuation toward toward e-commerce and online uh, spending for food, even if it's only about 2 percent of sales right now in the U.S.
0: Hey, Jeff, got to ask you, though, that Conagra deal, like they're betting, you know, bigger on frozen foods. Uh, is that going to make you rethink a little bit of some of the strategies that you guys have been kicking around at General Mills? Did you Did you call up your guys and say, hey, maybe we need to take a closer look at this?
7: No, we're really comfortable with the direction we're going. And, you know, for us, the, the key is to make sure we're growing, we grow our core business and we intend to do that next year while, while being effectively transitioning Blue Buffalo, which we're really excited mm-hmm. about, you know, a billion and a half dollar business growing at uh, double digits. And so to the extent we are successful transitioning Blue Buffalo and continue to grow our core, uh, we'll be, we'll be excited about that path.
2: Say, Jeff, I lived in the Twin Cities for many, many years. I know General Mills is a good community citizen. The workforce is filled with pride. You just see that through the Twin Cities. And, you know, you replaced an icon of a CEO. And, you know, General Mills, there's no secret that you've had a tough five years on Wall Street, uh, peaking at 72, but but now, you know, not quite half that number. Uh, is Is it... More than just food delivery that's going on right now, could, could it be that consumers are just more concerned with what's in their food and that you've, you've had some you know, challenges on that because whether it's high sugar in cereal or uh, you know, this BHT that you had taken out of cereal that, that consumers were concerned about and, and now there's even GMOs that is part of the debate? Where, where does that play in?
7: Well, you know, I think, you know, as we, as we started with a discussion on, on food values, you know, that's what's changed the most over the 10 years. And in some cases, that's been a challenge. We've talked about our yogurt business, and, and that was challenging for us with Greek yogurt. But, you know, in the most recent quarter, we actually grew share on our yogurt business, and, and we grew our cereal business this year, and our cereal shares are up. And so the uh, there's a lot of talk about what's going on in food. But I feel great for the third quarter in a row. In the fourth quarter, we actually grew our business, and we intend to do the same next year.
0: got just want to ask you, too, about shipping all this stuff around. Freight and input costs, we know, are going to be challenging going into and through uh, fiscal 2019. You guys have been on a, a cost savings and cost-cutting uh, moves. How will, though, those higher fuel and freight and input costs kind of affect uh, you?
7: Well, we, look, we think that, that we'll see continued inflation, whether that's on raw materials or manufacturing and labor costs or logistics costs. And, you know, our, our, our guidance for inflation is about 5 percent next year and about 4 percent this past year. So we'll see continued inflation. In fact, we think we'll see it rise a little bit. And the key for us is to make sure we're as efficient as possible. We're going to redo our entire logistics network. Uh, we're great at what we call holistic margin management, which is really productivity and supply chain. And we'll do a little bit on the pricing front. And you don't need 5% pricing to offset 5% inflation, but you need a little bit. And we've started to undertake that, and, and we're seeing that. And in fact, if you look at our fourth quarter, what you'll see is we've got about 3% pricing, mostly through through mix, uh, throughout, uh, throughout our company.
2: You know, Carol mentioned the Conagra deal for Pinnacle, and both those stocks took a beating yesterday when it was announced, uh, maybe because um, analysts think that Conagra may have um, overpaid. And, you know, you also are, are kind of questioned about overpaying for Blue Buffalo, the, um, the, the pet, the higher-end um, pet food. So can you take us into the room? I mean, how many of you are there? When is there dissent? Are you holding your breath when you are just about to sign the dotted line to pay $8 billion for Blue Buffalo? Can, can you bring us into that room at that moment of how a company and how you make that decision in the final moment?
7: Well, look. Any time you spend eight billion dollars, you know, as a company like General Mills, I mean, it certainly focuses the mind. But we uh, were really we were united behind that, you know, whether it's our board of directors or our senior leadership team, and and we were we were excited about announcing the deal in Blue Buffalo. And the more we've seen of it, the more we like. And in terms of you know how much we paid, you know, I, I tried to find a business that was a billion and a half dollars with really high margins, growing at double digits, so someone would someone would get me for cheap, and that didn't turn out to be the case. And <laughs> You know what I would say about Blue Buffalo is that some people say we pay too much, and what I would say is we paid a lot. If you look at what we did, you know, on, in terms of earnings, but um, I don't think we paid too much. Just like I don't think we did with Annie's. And time will be the final judge of whether we paid too much, but. We really like the business, and we're highly confident that it'll add value for General Mills shareholders.
0: Hey, one of the reasons you guys are in there, I think, at the the Aspen Ideas Festival, one of the topics certainly being kicked around is sustainability in the food industry. Tell me a little bit about uh, General Mills' initiatives uh, when it comes to that.
7: Yeah, we're really General Mills. General long history of being active in the community and, and you know, started in 1878 with our, with our founder and the flour mills. And so we've, already, we've always had a community orientation. And for us, business is a team sport. One of our values as a company is, is winning as a team. And, you know, you see that in our sustainability efforts. And one of the reasons we're here at Aspen is that, um, you know, social change and sustainability is a team sport. It takes companies working with NGOs, working with governments, working with farmers all together to make sustainable ideas happen in the marketplace.
0: Yeah, exactly. Certainly a big thing and building up, you know, certainly in this this era of climate change where you've kind of got to be nimble to deal with um, those, the, those issues. Jeff Harmoning, thank you so much for your time. Chief Executive Officer at General Mills, based in Minneapolis, at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. But, you know, we talked about this yesterday. Millennials, they're shopping differently. We all want fresh food. We're kind of going back to those days of, you know, You know, buying at the market every day. Uh, It's a different world when it comes to food, and and all those companies have to adapt. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.